Something that most people who've been around our church for a little while know about my family and I is that we were we, we spent um, a period of time as missionaries in Croatia. And one of the things that I was introduced to uh, while living overseas was this world that unless you're really living overseas or unless this is unless you're in the State Department uh, of the U.S. government, it's not something that you're really introduced to very often. Uh, but it was the world of U.S. embassies in foreign countries. Um, so every time I would need to do passport work for my passport uh, or get a passport renewed, or any time one of our children, any time, they were only born once. When, <laughs> when two of my three children were born, they were born in Croatia, um, we would have to take them to the U.S. embassy. Uh, to get all their, to get their birth certificate, to get their passport. There's this little photo booth when you enter where I'd have to hold up the baby's head and get out of the way. And then in in five weeks, they don't look the same. So anyway, I remember going to get my passport renewed at the U.S. Embassy in Zagreb, the capital city of Croatia where we lived, and being shocked at how jarring uh, the experience was walking into the U.S. Embassy. It, it felt like I had le- as soon as I walked through the doors, it felt like for about 30 minutes, I was transported to America. Um, I mean, so not, I, not only did I learn that, so a U.S. embassy in a foreign country, literally the plot of land that it sits on is American soil. So it's not only that I was literally on, in one sense, American soil, but as soon as it, like, even the, the style of the building, like the 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 architecture, the, the way the doors looked, the door handles. I remember even the bathroom fixtures were different from Croatian bathroom fixtures. It was I was in America. The, there was Fox News and CNN playing in the lobby. I I it was a jarring experience. But this shouldn't, it shouldn't have been as jarring as it was. I, I, part of it is I just didn't know what to expect. And then I learned. But if I had thought about what an embassy is and does and what its workers exist for in the country that they're living in, it shouldn't have been shocking. An embassy and its workers exist to represent and advance the interests of their homeland in a foreign country. That's the point of an embassy. Well, for us as Christians, you know, one of the things that we're going to see this morning in our text and that Paul makes very clear in the book of Philippians is that our, our citizenship as Christians, our, our primary citizenship and identity is found in Christ. We are citizens of, of heaven. And we're given a new, as it were, passport uh, through faith in Christ. And yet we're left here as Christians on the earth to represent and advance the interests of our king, Jesus, until he brings us home to our homeland. And so today, something our text addresses uh, are both what the interests of our king are, and then also the way that we represent and advance him and those interests, his purposes. So the, the big idea this morning is this. Uh, it's as citizen, as a citizen of heaven, or as citizens of heaven, live gospel-centered lives by living a gospel-shaped life. As citizens of heaven, live a gospel-centered life 
by living a gospel-shaped life. That's, I believe, the argument that Paul is making for the Philippians and therefore the argument that I want to make to us this morning. And, and, and something that Paul does in this large section of text, we're going to cover chapter 1, 20, verse 27, all the way through chapter 2, verse 18. And it seems like, and, and I'm just saying this off the bat to eliminate any confusion, it seems that Paul, as, as this letter was being written, intentionally structured this section of text almost like a sandwich. So the, the, the bread of the sandwich is on the top and the bottom. It's the, the bread consists of chapter 1, 27 through 30. And then the bottom part of the sandwich is, is in chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. So we're going to look at the bread together. And then we're going to get to the meat or the substance of the sandwich in the middle, which is chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Um, and so just, just so that you have your bearing straight as we're kind of working our way through this text. So we're going to look at the bread, and then we're going to get to the middle of the sandwich after that. And so we're going to look at our big idea in, in, in these two parts, living a gospel-centered life and then living a gospel-shaped life. So the first part is a gospel-centered life, and we're looking at the bread. So I'm going to read chapter 1, verses, verse 27 to 30, and then we'll jump to chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Well, in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul here for the first time in this letter turns to explicitly address the Philippians and start telling them what they're supposed to do. And, and it's all summed up in this one sentence, basically this whole section that I read. And our whole text today is, and, and Paul's exhortation is kind of basically summed up in, in this first words of verse 27. When he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word here, manner of life in in the ESV, um, the the word in the original language is a word which has political overtones to it. Um, It it speaks of how one lives as a citizen of their country. And so when combined with Paul's idea in chapter 4, as we'll get to in, in coming weeks, uh, Paul, Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 4 that they are citizens of heaven. And so it seems best here, because of the political overtones of this word, live your like manner of life, it has, these, it has these same kind of overtones. 
It seems best here to understand Paul is essentially saying, live like citizens of heaven. Live like, only let your life, your manner of life, only live as citizens of heaven whose lives and conduct are worthy in line with the message and agenda of heaven or the gospel. Live like citizens of heaven who promote heaven's message. That's the idea. And now if we go down to chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Paul says a similar thing. So just before this, we didn't read these verses yet. In in verses 9 to 11 of chapter 2, Paul has just spoken about Jesus, who is the exalted king. And now he claims in chapter 2, verses 12 and 11, that the Philippians are to keep on obeying, living in submission to Jesus, the king, uh, by working out their salvation. Because God's working in them. But basically, Paul's kind of saying the same thing that he just said in 127. Live in submission to Jesus. Let your manner of life be worthy of heaven's message, of the gospel. Keep living in line with what God has done, and he's also working in you, what he's doing in your life. And so right off the bat this morning, the way that Paul starts introducing how the Philippians are to be living in the midst of this life and in the midst of the circumstances that they find themselves in, right out of the gate, Paul reminds them, and here, and we're also reminded this morning, that for those of us who have come to faith in Christ, as I said in, in the, at the beginning, we, we have a new citizenship. We have, a, we have citizenship in Jesus' kingdom. But not only do we have citizenship, if you belong to a certain country, you're expected to behave in line with that. If you belong to Jesus and his kingship, that should be evident in your life. You're called to live in line with your citizenship. right? God has not redeemed Christians just because he's this nice guy in the sky who likes to like help people out. God has redeemed a people for himself for the purpose of living as his people, as citizens of his country. And he's called them to live that way right here, right now. In other words, to continue the imagery that I've been using, citizens of heaven are left on earth as ambassadors of heaven who represent and advance God's interests and his program, the gospel. And it's to participate in and have our lives reflect and point to the reality that God is in the business of restoring sinful humans and the whole of his created order through the work of Jesus on the cross. Living your life as a citizen of heaven means that your life sends forth that message and you live for that purpose. You represent your king right here, right now, even though you're of a different country. To put it succinctly, what we see here is a call for the Christian to lead a gospel-centered life. So the question becomes, okay, great, live a gospel-centered life. That sounds cool. Okay, so like, what does that look like? What does that look like? And for the Philippians in their situation, it looks like, as Frank Thielman, a theologian, states, for them, specifically, it looks like standing united, standing together, linking arms, standing united against problems from without and problems from within. So we're going to look at both of those. And we see problems from without that the Philippians are facing in verses, in chapter 1, verse 27 to 30. 
And what becomes clear in, in, in these verses is that the Philippian believers, they're suffering. We, we see Paul, Paul talking about them standing firm, as you see in verse uh, 27, in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Seems clear then from verse 30 when Paul says that they're engaged in the same conflict that he, that they saw he had. This is likely a reference to Acts 16 when Paul first came to Philippi. Well, how was Paul treated? Paul was flogged and thrown in prison. Seems safe to deduce that this is the kind of things that are happening to the Philippian believers. And in the midst of then their suffering for the gospel, Paul wants to be sure that the believers are united. They have one mind, that they're linking arms. He says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened by their opponents. Paul's language here has some possible military connotations to it. I mean, you, you can kind of even see it, this like striving side by side. The, 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 the picture I have in, I had in my mind as I was reading through this is, is that the Philippian believers are to be like this troop of soldiers in the midst of a raging battle, right? They're, they're, they're standing firm together, linked arms. They're, they're holding up their shields together. If you've ever seen those movies when all the, you know, the army battalion comes and they hold up their shields and they make kind of this giant shield around them, like they're, they're united. They're making a stand. They're, they're, they're formed as one. They're holding up their shields together. So they're not giving any ground as they press on as one to accomplish the, the interests, the, the, the commands of their commander-in-chief, Jesus. And if we just think about this a little bit, right? They're not just suffering arbitrarily for like just because people don't like them in Philippi. They're suffering for a very specific reason. The Philippian believers are suffering specifically because of their faith in and faithfulness to Jesus. They're suffering because they are citizens of heaven. And it would be so much easier for them to just disband, to shut this whole church thing down, and then what would happen? Suffering would stop. But Paul, he wants them to stick together through this. He doesn't want them to shut down shop. The question is why? When we look at verses 28 and 29, it becomes clear that the Philippian suffering is actually a God-ordained reminder of the truth and the hope of the gospel. Their suffering and their standing united actually reminds them that those who are opposing the gospel will be judged one day. And for the Philippian believers, staying faithful to the gospel, the fact that God has redeemed them, it reminds them of their hope in Christ that one day they will be saved. But additionally, if we look at verse 30, their standing together in the midst of suffering for the gospel is actually a means of advancing the gospel. Right? Paul, in verse 30, equates their suffering to his suffering. He says, guys, basically, like, we're doing the same thing. And if you remember last week, we saw Paul's in prison, he's suffering for the gospel, but we saw that his suffering for the gospel is actually a means of advancing the gospel. So what's Paul saying about their suffering? He says, you're suffering, you're striving together in the same struggle with me, it's working to advance the gospel. 
Their staying united together has big implications, is my point. And I think that's Paul's point. Not allowing the opposition they face in this world to disband them is meaningful and important. It's connected to their hope and their role as citizens of heaven on this earth to advance their king's purposes. And the point for us this morning in 2023 in Puyallup, Washington, is that as we, if if you are a Christian this morning, as we live in a world which has a very different set of values than, than those of the gospel, the pressure is on. Even in our own culture, the pressure is ever increasing. And one thing we need to strive toward is standing united together in our beliefs, in the gospel. This is linking arms to say that we will not stop promoting Jesus, prizing, as we sung about, Jesus our prize, prizing Jesus and partnering together in Jesus' gospel work. And this is important because it, it, when we do that, then it acts to remind us of our hope that we have. It keeps our eyes centered on the right things. But this is also how God's plan is advancing. His purposes are advancing in the world. As God's people stand united around that. So Paul's saying, please stick together, guys. Please stick together. Be united against these problems from without. But then we also see in chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, and specifically 14 to 18, that there's problems from within. There's problems inside their own troop. Later in this letter, in, in chapter 4, we're, we're going to see that there's two seemingly prominent women in the church who even served alongside of Paul for a little bit. Euodia and Syntyche are their names, and they seem to be having a fight. They're at odds with each other. And it seems from then what Paul says in verses 14 to 18 of chapter 2 that this may have started to infect the rest of the church. Paul says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So again, even in what Paul's saying here, we really what Paul's getting at saying, don't complain and don't argue. In other words, to put it positively, be unified, stand together. Same sort of message. But except in these verses now, they're standing firm against internal problems within the church. Issues in their own hearts and in their own relationships. So, so to go back to the image of, of a troop of soldiers, if, if the goal of a troop of soldiers is their unity, what threatens to rip them apart is not only these external pressures, but the enemy inside of each of them. Right, It's not hard to imagine, I've never been in the military, there's some in this room who have. I just imagine that it makes it really hard if people in your company are complaining about their circumstances and about everybody else in there and, and that's with them. They just kind of don't like each other. And they're actually quarreling with each other. Like what else would work to disband them faster? And obviously, then if the troop disbands, well, it's a failed mission. Mission fails. And this is why Paul says in chapter 2, verse 15, he, he starts to connect their, the Philippians' unity to their witness. 
So he says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. And then he says this one word, really important word, that. He's showing reason. Why? Why is this important? Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The way, guys, the way that you act like children of God and you shine like lights in the darkness is you stay unified with each other. When we as Christians are known for and characterized, to, to, to put this negatively, when we are known for and characterized by complaining and arguments, it actually works to misrepresent our heavenly citizenship and it tarnishes our heavenly message. Right? To, to, to live in a state of constant complaining and discontentment, especially about those around you or those who you have to be with, is to claim essentially that God is not good. That's the implicit message of complaining and discontentment. And then to be divisive and argumentative with other believers, to not be able to live in unison and in unity with them, is to claim that God's gospel, his truth, like his work of saving and then creating a new unified people, it's to claim that that's false. This is why their unification is so important for the furthering of God's purposes in the world. The stakes are high. So when Paul talks about not grumbling or complaining in order to shine his lights, this is why we see there's something that he's doing. When he says, not, don't grumble and complain so that you shine his lights, he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. And this is a verse in Deuteronomy which references Israel's grumbling and disputing in the wilderness. God saved the people of Israel by his grace but and gave them commands and ways that they were supposed to be living in order to be a nation of priests, a holy people, a light to the nations. They were to represent God well. And then we see they go through the wilderness and all they're doing is disputing and complaining, grumbling. They misrepresent God. They failed in what God had given them to do. They were not lights in the midst of a dark world. And Paul's exhortation is, don't do the same thing. The point for the Philippians and for us this morning is that as the new covenant people of God, God has commissioned us to be his ambassadors on earth, to represent his interests and to see his gospel advance as we wait for him to bring us to our homeland. And vital to that process, vital to our doing that, is our standing together in our beliefs and in our relationships with one another. To put it differently, the, the gospel-centered life is one of standing together with gospel people. And we see that Paul is getting at this idea that this is what God's people, this, this is so highly important, the stakes are so high because this concerns your mission as God's people. It concerns who you are and what you're to be doing. So we get through all of that. And the question that raises in our minds is, thanks for the newsflash, Paul. So how exactly are we supposed to uphold our unity? If our unity is is what holds us together and helps us do what we're supposed to do as citizens of heaven left on the earth, how exactly do we have unity? How exactly do we lead lives that are worthy of the gospel, that are gospel-centered? 
And the answer we see is in the center of our sandwich. It's in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And the basic idea here is that, well, how, how do we stay unified? How do we live lives worthy of the gospel? We need to lead lives that are shaped by the gospel. Paul says this, well, before I read chapter 2, verse 1, so remember, just prior to chapter 2, verse 1, Paul's just finished talking about the Philippians and, 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 and his joint struggle together in the advancement of the gospel. So he begins chapter 2 saying, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... And, and the idea is not so much if, like, these things might be true. The idea is more of a sense. Since these things are true, since this is true in our relationship, since we have these things, since God has done this for us, what does he say? Complete my joy, verse 2, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Be unified. So, so, so we see the message continues. This, this idea of stay together. How? Verses three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition, but act humbly. Consider others better than yourself. Intentionally think about others' interests and needs, not just your own. This is Paul's recipe for how they stay unified and gospel-centered. It is a life full of selfless humility. Or, another way to put it, is it's following in the footsteps of Jesus. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. Paul, in light of his exhortation to them to stay unified and then how they stay unified, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was in Christ Jesus. And then he's going to tell us something about Jesus in verses 6 through 11. He says, who, so Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says in, in, in verse 6 that Jesus was in the form of God, equal to God. He is God. And yet he didn't consider his equality with God a thing to be grasped, something that he should exploit to his own advantage. Instead, as one author states, Jesus expressed his deity, he expressed his godness in two ways. First, Paul lets us know that he emptied himself. He expressed selflessness. He took the form of a servant, the lowest rank in society at this point. And he, and he was born as a human. 
So how does Jesus express his godness? Surprisingly and shockingly, for Jesus to be God is to be a servant. Jesus is God, and as such, what is most natural to him is to serve others. To give of himself for the sake of others and their benefit. Not to, as Jesus says in Mark's gospel, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And second, it says that Jesus humbled himself. Paul talks about how he was obedient to the Father to the point of death, and not just any death. He was obedient to the most shameful, low, disgusting death known at this time to the Philippians and the Roman Empire. It was death on a cross. A cross was not a piece of jewelry. This was shameful. It was so shameful that you'd, to, you would not talk about this. With pe- this was not dinner table discussion stuff. It was so taboo that to talk about it, you just didn't. You didn't talk about this. Jesus to be God meant going from, I've mentioned him before, but theologian Frank Thielman puts it, going from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And all of that for the sake of serving and saving those who had sinned against him. And then following this in verses 9 to 11, we see that God, the Father, exalted Jesus and publicly bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the name of Lord Yahweh, so that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, the point being some willingly and some unwillingly, that Jesus is Lord. It's God the Father's glory. What we see Paul doing here is telling us the message of the gospel. And in it, we see this amazing, gracious, humble, selfless character of God revealed in this message. That God is utterly selfless in his love, willing to humble himself beyond what we could ever imagine, all for the benefit of others. And in the gospel, what we see is Jesus as the ultimate example of doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but rather in humility counting others better than himself and considering not his own interests, but the interests of others. In the gospel, the Philippians see Jesus, not only the one who they are to emulate, not only their example, but their leader, who's trailblazing ahead of them, going before them, showing them the way to lead a unified and gospel-centered life. This is why I've made the claim that in order to be gospel-centered, you have to have a gospel-shaped life. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's, it's only as we embody the gospel story that we hold so dearly to, it's only as we think and act like Jesus It's only as we selflessly and humbly serve one another that we can ever hope to stand firmly and united and centered as we journey through this life together as citizens of heaven. The call here for us is to be those who are so others-focused that it produces this irresistible pull to want to be together. That it produces such a unifying force that it becomes this sort of glue that holds us together as one and it strengthens us. The, one of the problems, though, 
when we read a passage like this is, as one pastor I know used to say, all this, as Christians, this talk of being a servant sounds really virtuous. Sounds like, oh yes, that, I, I need to do that. Until you're actually treated like a servant. Then it's hard. And I think Paul knows that. Um, I've, I've been reading a, a book that I've found very helpful on parenting by a Christian counselor. Her, her name is Julie Lowe. And um, speaking on these verses, uh, she points out the reason that Paul needs to exhort the Philippians to selfless humility. And, and, and the reason is because their natural disposition and our natural disposition can so often be what Paul says not to do. Our natural disposition, if you're anything like me, maybe you're not, is selfish ambition. Like even, she, she talks about even in our serving others, oftentimes we, we so often do so with this hope that we'll get something back. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll like help you, but like you got to scratch my back too. Or like, I hope I get something out of this. Selfish ambition. And yet the call on us as Christians is the call of the cross. It's, 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 it's the way of the cross. The way of Jesus. To be more like him. This reminds us that the life of a Christian, right, the, the, the way that we handle our relationships with others, whether in the church and our families outside of the church, will not be characterized ever by what is fair. Like we gave up fair when God saved us. The gospel is not fair. The cross was not fair. Christian service will never be fair. And that's hard for us to hear as Americans who are so into our rights. For me personally, I was reminded this week that especially in light of Jesus' example that Paul gives, um, every time selfish ambition becomes the dominant force of my actions or my thought life, every time that I think that my needs and my interests and my, or I classify my needs as wants, or sorry, I classify my wants as needs. I exalt them way too high. Every time I think that my interests are what are most important and most pressing, every time that I do that, I make a claim that I'm better than God himself. Service to others is not fair. But what it does is this amazing thing. It actually leads to unity. It leads to linking arms and strong bonds and tight relationships. It leads to the type of relationships when God, in, 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 that you see in the great commandment. Jesus summarizes the commands of God to love him, to love God, and then to love others. You know how those sorts of relationships are formed? It's, it's when we, we emulate Jesus, when we live a gospel-shaped life. And ultimately then, that leads to the furthering of the gospel in the world. But also as I was thinking about this, so not just reflecting on my own personal sins and the way that this text is speaking to me and convicting me, 
Also, as I was talking with Pastor Phil this week about this text and, and, and thinking about some of you and our church, I think that we see this, like this selfless humility lived out in so many ways in our church. Like I could, I could flip through our membership directory and look at a lot of you in our church, if not all of you, and go, there are ways in, in all of your lives that I see you enacting selfless humility. Right? I, I think of our own pastor, Stephen, who's in Chicago right now, who I, I'm, I'm in the office with him every week. So is Phil. He goes above and beyond what is required of him in his care for, for our church. I think, I think we saw this modeled in, in Katrina this morning, leading us in, in worship, taking time to prepare songs that we might sing together. I think we see it in all of those who aren't with us in this room right now because they're in the rooms back there watching children, sharing the gospel with them, giving up their own pleasure in sitting under the preaching of God's word as if my preaching is pleasurable. <laughs> that's, that's another story. But they're giving up something. Or the ushers who get here early on Sunday morning to put signs out so people like know where to drive and they welcome people at the door and they give them bulletins. Seen in... Ellen Williams helping an Afghan family who just moved here and organizing help for her. It's seen in, in the countless women in our church who've organized meal trains for parents of newborns and then all the people who have signed up for those meal trains to bring them food. I mean, how could that not bind people together? That sort of service and humility and love. The, the list could go on, right? The, the, the commendation here for us is to keep doing those things. To keep serving one another in humility and in selflessness. But it doesn't stop there, right? I think when Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, he is speaking in the context of primarily the local church. But I think this Christ-like selfless mindset then should extend into all of our relationships, right? Parents with our kids. If you have little kids like me, or maybe older kids, I think this looks like actually doing the hard work of training our kids, disciplining them when they're wrong, walking graciously with them as, as their struggles and their weaknesses manifest itself, despite the drain that that might be on your energy or your free time or my energy or my free time. I, th- I, th- I think in our friendships, it's, it's having a thick skin and covering over wrongs. I, in our marriages, it's seeking to one-up each other, to outdo each other in acts of love and, and kind words. Selfless service is a sacrifice, but it's also the way of Jesus and the way of his people. It's the way citizens of heaven live. They live the heavenly life now. That is the heavenly life. Now, if you're feeling the weight of this, In one sense, that's good. I think Paul wants us to feel the weightiness of this (laughs) and our own insufficiency in doing this. This is a weighty issue. But I think there's two things that I want to share very briefly in closing that will help us bear this weight in a godly way. As I was discussing uh, this text this week with our very own Aaron Sherwood, um, he, he reminded me that sprinkled throughout our text is this idea that God has given his people the spirit. 
and that he is working his salvation out in all of our lives. I think that's most blatantly seen in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul doesn't just say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but he says, because it's God working in you to will and to work for his own good pleasure. In our effort to be shaped by the gospel and look more like Jesus, this effort is not, and it should never be divorced, from our complete and under dependence upon God. Like the God who has saved us by the gospel is the same God that ensures that he will shape our story to be the story of the gospel. And he's given a, it, 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 it's, it's, as, it's as if in Jesus, he is not only, this could be very cheesy, he has not only given us, like he, he's given us everything, right? He, he's given us the car, he's given us the roadmap in Jesus, and, and he's given us like all the things that we need to, to drive that path. And as we live in humble dependence upon him to do this, I, th- I think the, the implicit imperative for us all is to ask him, God, help me. Help me to act in selfless and humble ways toward my family today. Help me to see the needs of others as more, as better, as as a, a, a greater priority than my own. Would you work this in me? But secondly, though service is sacrifice, though the Christian life and being a citizen of heaven is one of, sacrif- of, of sacrificial living, I think what our text also shows is that is a, it is a life of joy and it is a life that leads to glory. So, so first notice in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul prefaces this this exhortation to live a gospel-shaped life by saying, complete my joy. The Philippians doing this will complete his joy. It leads to his joy. But then also, as we follow in Jesus' footsteps, it seems that Paul includes Jesus' exaltation. And then scattered throughout this text, hints of our future hope of salvation that we would remember that though we now sacrifice, following in the footsteps of Jesus, going down his path, doesn't just produce present joy, but it also looks forward to future glory. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, by your love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When our story is like Jesus' story, when the gospel shapes our lives, it fosters unity. And a corporate life as a church that is centered on the gospel. And when that's happening, when the gospel is on display in our lives together, it makes sense then that this only strengthens our gospel witness in the world. And while this calls us to an action, while it says, what Paul is saying here to live in a certain way, to emulate Jesus, we can also trust in the midst of that, that God is at work in us and that he will grant us joy in the gospel-shaped life as we await the day when he brings us home to himself. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you not only that you've saved us, but that you've given us Jesus as the ultimate example of how we're to live. And we thank you that your ways are good. 
We thank you that your ways produce life. And we thank you for the glory that awaits us as your people. Work this in us, Father, we ask. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. We thank you for the evidences and ways that that is present in our midst already. And we ask that you would continue to do that in our hearts and in our lives. We pray that in your name and for your glory. Amen.